Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Today, we have a very special guest, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, a legend in the space. Maybe it, feels, it makes him feel uncomfortable when I say that, but at least to me, from class of 2016, he is a legend. And of course, I'm talking about the one, the only Jimmy Song. But before we jump into the show, I want to give a very special shout out to the sponsor of the show, Swan Bitcoin, best place to build your Bitcoin uh, to build your Bitcoin stack. It's being built by Bitcoiners. It's for Bitcoiners. If you haven't haven't already done so, visit swanbitcoin.com today. And if you go to swan.com slash simply, if you make your first purchase, you'll get $10 in Bitcoin for free. So anyways, no more delay. I want to bring Jimmy up on stage. Jimmy, did I make you feel uncomfortable when I called you a Bitcoin legend? Uh, just a little bit, but that's okay. I've been called lots of other things that have made me much more uncomfortable. So that, that that's uh, that's not too bad. Man, you've you've been in this space a very long time. Could you have could you have ever have imagined uh, where we are today? Um, Bitcoin legal tender in a nation state, a public company holding Bitcoin on their you know on their balance sheet, BlackRock announcing that they're going you know one of the most evil organizations in the world, announcing that they're going to uh, be launching a Bitcoin ETF, and then all of a sudden the legacy corporate media changes tune like Bitcoin is actually a good thing. What are you talking about? Could you ever have imagined this when you got into the scene? Well, I kind of could have because I thought it would, there was a chance that it could become sort of that global reserve currency. And if it's going to get there at some point in between, all of those things kind of had to happen. What I couldn't imagine was kind of my role. I'm a, I'm a coder, right? Like I, I, I'm a code monkey or whatever. And that, that's what I was when I first got into the space. Um, you know, doing podcasts and speaking at conferences and doing stuff like this. That that part I didn't imagine. I, I had no idea that I would have sort of the role, I guess, that I ended up having in this space. Um, and that that's the part that's still kind of blowing my mind. What made you feel so confident that this thing was going to be uh, world reserve currency, especially in the very early days that I think it wasn't so obvious? I mean, I think it's obvious to Bitcoiners, but uh, <laughs> what what made it what made it obvious? Because there's a lot more uncertainty back then, right? You know, mm -hmm. there's famous fork wars, 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the China ban, um, mm -hmm. which ended up being a blessing. Uh, so, mm -hmm. what made you so certain uh, from the very beginning, the very early days of of Bitcoin? Well, I, I wasn't certain at the beginning. Uh, I, I just thought it had a chance. Uh, so. I think the reason why I even had that little bit of hope was because I had studied some Austrian economics and so on after the 2008 great financial crisis. And when I finally saw it in 2011, sort of having the coding and math background and the economics sort of education that I had from 2008, just sort of fell into place. And I was like, okay, I'm not sure if this will get there, but you know, it has a chance. And if it has a chance, um, then it's uh, plus EV to go get some. And that, that was sort of the calculation in my mind. It wasn't, you know, um, I'm completely certain that this is going to be the thing that, uh, that takes over the world or whatever. Um, that conviction I developed later on. Uh, but, you know, at, at least at that point in time, just having that little bit of, uh, uh, like, expectation or probability or calculation in my mind of what what could happen was enough for me to you know sort of dive into it yeah um and i i kind of want to talk about that because 2011 is very early days mm -hmm. right and i think a lot of people don't fully understand uh the so many so many uh so many things have been built out since then to make Bitcoin more accessible to the masses. I'm class of 2016. I'm, I'm an Electrum junkie, baby. I'm never going to leave. <laughs> you know, they still have Sparrow and all these like new fans. And I'm like, no, you know what? I, I figured out Electrum. I'm sticking with Electrum. It is my cup of tea. But back then there, didn't, there wasn't even Electrum. There was just Bitcoin Core. Uh, so what, what, what were those early days like? Yeah, I, it, was, it was very different, obviously. And uh, I think there were maybe three exchanges in the entire world. Uh, and one of them was Mt. Gox. That was sort of where you went to go and trade Bitcoin. Um, 
though, uh, you know, everyone would hang out at BitcoinTalk.org and like, you know, there, there was no Bitcoin community on Twitter or really even an active Bitcoin subreddit on Reddit. It, it was just everybody was on Bitcoin Talk and it wasn't that many people. So um, I still remember and I think this forum's still there, uh, you know, news articles on Bitcoin and you'd maybe see one article a week. You know, <laughs> that, that was it. Um, it really didn't have much mind share over people at all. And, you know, the, the little bit of news that you got, you got from, you know, the, the people that were on the forums themselves. Um, you know, you, you still had stuff like Cassius coin and people trying out lots of different things. And, uh, you know, the, there were a lot of other sort of exchanges that had gone bankrupt and like rug pulls of all kinds and things like that. So it, it was very much sort of the wild west back then. And there were, there weren't any, you know, education sources or many wallets. Um, you know, you, you had, I think a couple of web wallets, um, all, all of which rug pulled, um, you had Bitcoin core wallet, but you also had armory, I think was, uh, was started around 2011 as well. Um, I, I ended up working there, which is why I know about it. Uh, but, you know, there, there just wasn't very much stuff. So, you know, what, one of the things I talk about sometimes is, uh, you know, people have this sort of time travel fantasy, especially about Laszlo and the 10,000 Bitcoins for like two pizzas that he traded in the middle of 2010. Like people like they they're it's totally a time travel fantasy right because for them it's oh you know i wish i got in then and i'd have 10,000 bitcoin and i'd have like uh like a billion dollars or something like that well no no you wouldn't because there were lots of people that had 10,000 bitcoin back then uh but they didn't hold uh hold hold the bitcoin uh largely because they didn't understand the economics or they didn't understand the tech it was sort of like this play thing for them and you know when it got to five dollars six dollars eight dollars and they bought it at 25 cents it was like oh yeah i'm, I'm selling i want to i want to book the profit or something like that that that's how they were thinking and, and you know eighty thousand dollars is like oh you know that's enough for a car i can i can go do that and you know just sort of like uh bank their gains or whatever um it it, it was a very difficult sort of journey at the beginning to know that this would be something someday without like having studied a lot of this stuff. And there weren't that many books, you know, safety published the Bitcoin standard, I think in 2016, um, you know, that, that was sort of like the first economics work where, you know, like you could really kind of get why this was significant or like a viable path for it to sort of become that reserve currency. Um, very few people understood the tech. I, I still remember um, coding a lot of this stuff in 2013. There were so few resources for understanding a lot of that stuff, which is why I ended up writing Programming Bitcoin, because I was, I was incredibly frustrated with the material that was out there for just like as a coder. OK, what, what the heck do I do? Like, how, how do I, you know, uh, create a wallet or how, what, what do I do with a private key? What the heck is a private key anyway? anyway? And you know, how, how does it work and why is it secure and all, all of that? Like very little of that content was out there. Like nowadays, there's just so much content, so many books, so much, uh, you know, so many podcasts, so many um, YouTube videos. There are even hardware wallets and things like that. I and mean, like hardware wallets weren't a thing until like 2015. Like that, that tells you that it, this it was very, very difficult back then. And uh, and like that conviction early on like it, very few people had it and it's honestly only by the grace of god that i, I have what i have uh because i could have been rugged many times i could have lost it many times and it was you know i i got my coins out of mount gox in the middle of uh 2013 for example thanks to a tip from a friend um you know it's, it's stuff like that 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 let me sort of hold on to the stack that i have uh, and you know, it's, it was, it was just really difficult.
And you and that's a story that you hear over and over again, right? Which is you have you have a lot of people that uh, accumulated an ungodly enormous stack in the in the very early days, right? Um, but again, no one really thought of Bitcoin the way that they see Bitcoin now. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, for the first time, I don't know. I'm sure you've seen this because you know we we all we all kind of live on Bitcoin Twitter in a way. Um, where the amount of coins being held on exchanges just continues to go down. Mm. Um, it seems like people are just like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to sell this anymore. This mm. is precious. There's 21 million. But in the beginning, it seemed like that, you know, uh, people were a lot less, uh, you know, it, it, I remember there was this story of maybe you were around during this era, but the famous Bitcoin faucet that was like mm. giving people, I think it was like, what was it? Like five or 50 coins or something. If you put in your email, no, it wasn't even an email. It was like a captcha, and you put in your uh, Bitcoin address, and it just it just automatically sent it. I think Gavin Andreessen set it up initially at five Bitcoin. This was like in 2010. I, I remember going to that faucet in 2011, and I got 0.05 Bitcoin. And I, I was like, oh, man, this is so little. It used to give so much more. <laughs> of course, like 0.05 Bitcoin is what? Uh, 5 million sats or something like that, which is which is a lot of money now. Um, I ended up putting that into a web wallet. Um, uh, man, I, I am having some... Uh, uh, am I back? Uh, it said that there was some connection issues, but okay. Any, anyway... Um, Assuming you you can hear me, there there was a lot of uh, a lot of that uh, you know faucets and you know people giving uh, you know stuff away for free or you know um, people selling kind of silly stuff. You know there there were alpaca socks on Bitcoin talk forums that were I don't know like eight Bitcoin per socks or something like that and. People bought them. <laughs> it's like, oh, cool! I could spend spend Bitcoin for this stuff. It it was it was kind of crazy, but that that that's kind of the era that we're coming from, where you know Bitcoin was worth like a dollar, so paying eight bucks for alpaca socks seemed like pretty reasonable. Um, you know that like you know a lot of us sort of regret spending Bitcoin on on that silly stuff, uh, not especially now. Uh, but, you know, that that was kind of what it was back then. People didn't really understand sort of the sound money property. It was more kind of a play thing. You know, it was it was mostly technical people like me that were trying stuff out. Oh, look at this cool new thing I made or whatever. Um, and not so much uh, the economics, which uh, turns out to be the much more important thing. When did you realize this was the real deal? When did you because I had a very similar story in the sense that like I used Bitcoin Mm. as money to buy something online that you couldn't use other money for um, to, to, you know, to put it that way. Mm. And um, but I used it as money. I didn't use it as savings. So, Mm. you know, and and if that was in, in, in my case, it would have been 2015 Mm -hmm. that my first exposure to Bitcoin. But it was a year later that I realized Oh crap! Uh, you know, I should be stacking and saving this and mm-hmm. never spending my Bitcoin. So <laughs> when did it click in your head? Like, what, what, what? How did you come to that realization? Okay, okay, this is more than just you know fun money or technology. Mm-hmm. This thing is you know this thing is savings. Like this is the real deal. Uh, what led you to that realization? Yeah, I, I think like everybody else, as the price started going up, you do the you do the math. You know, it's like, wait, I spent how much on this thing? And you know, I I, I still have that story from 2013. Uh, there was there was some guy on uh, the Bitcoin Reddit that posted, "Hey, we're we're selling beef jerky for uh, for Bitcoin. If you want to buy some here, and you can pay here, and so on." So I bought a hundred dollars worth of beef jerky in 2013. And this was when it was about what four hundred dollars per Bitcoin. You know, I spent a quarter of a Bitcoin on beef jerky. Now that quarter of a Bitcoin is like seventy five hundred dollars. I mean, it was it was decent beef jerky, but ten years later, it's seventy five hundred dollars. I, I don't know if it was worth it. You know, um, and that that's when you start realizing sort of like the power of saving, and that this is how it should be in any sort of like sound money economy. 
that's how money behaves is that you can buy more and more stuff as you know uh, people become more efficient and new technologies come online and stuff like that I, I don't know if you've ever done this with like a computer or whatever but you know you 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 buy like a computer or maybe a cell phone or something like that and then like two years later it's worth like a tiny fraction it's like ah yeah but I, at least i used it um you know it it, it puts sort of like a, a different mentality into you as you watch uh you know the the price of something um or a price of bitcoin go up that that that's kind of how you learn and i think like very viscerally that's how most people in Bitcoin learn that it's really a savings tech uh, that like if you spend it, you you end up kind of getting screwed over later in terms of, in, in those terms and so on. And, you know, I, I, I know people that bought cars in like 2012 with their Bitcoin gains. I mean, th those would be worth like millions of dollars now. And, you know, they, they just didn't think about it that way. They thought it was a more transactional currency and so on. And, you know, I mean, like, no doubt that it's it's useful for that. But the far uh, more needed thing, especially in Western Europe or the United States or something like that, is it's a good savings technology. You have plenty of ways to pay for something. You can can pay for something with credit card or check or, you know, Venmo or Cash App or Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever. Like there, PayPal, you know, there, there's so many different ways to pay for something. That's not really what's lacking. The thing that's lacking is a good place to store your money or to have savings that's not debased away from you. And really, the only three things that I've been able to identify besides Bitcoin are gold, stocks, and real estate. And it's no uh, coincidence that at least real estate and stocks have been going up like crazy during a period of monetary expansion. So, you know, having something like Bitcoin, like it, it's it's that's where the gap in the market is it's not payment tech uh, except in places like el salvador or whatever there you know where you don't have you know modern pos systems and stuff like that so people use bitcoin as a transaction thing or remittances and things like that um it ends up being a, a much more useful thing as a, a as a savings vehicle and honestly the the people that have used it that way have seen like insane utility out of it um and including myself um and that's that's where i i think it, it it's still needed in large parts of the world uh, just because inflation is just uh, so rampant and um you know you're seeing prices go up and so on yeah um opti's putting smash the like <laughs> we only do that during the live show man not during the irl <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> trolling me anyways um okay uh yeah man so you were talking about uh basically utility do you think that we'll ever get to a point you know there's like the law of big numbers right mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for bitcoin to get from a dollar to two dollars than it would then it will be for it to get to a million or two million mm -hmm. or maybe maybe it's just as easy who knows mm -hmm. um but i guess what i'm trying to say is like does it ever become do you ever see it becoming a medium of exchange especially once it gets to those uh, high price points. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the way um, I've observed sort of like, uh, you know, currency sort of go is, you know, uh, when at a, at a certain point, merchants don't like the other currencies. Um, and you can see this in hyperinflating countries where, you know, if you try to pay with the local currency that's hyperinflating, they, they kind of don't like it. They prefer dollars or, uh, you know, some other currency. Um, and that uh, and when the merchant starts demanding it uh, and, you know, they don't give you any other way to pay that that's when you end up sort of giving it up because you want whatever it is that the merchant has Um and you you have no other choice. Uh, and that that's uh, if you study any hyperinflating economies, that's that's what ends up happening during like Weimar uh, Germany, for example. Um, farmers like had entire storehouses of food. Right. Um, and they refused to sell for uh, the depreciating mark. Uh, they, they were they were just like, we can't buy anything with this. It's it's like getting away from us too quick. So we, we just refuse to sell. So you have this like bumper crop of uh, of food 
one particular year and like nobody could buy food in the cities. You, you had like a man-made famine uh, from hyperinflation. So in that sort of situation, I, I bet you the farmers would have sold for, you know, gold or something like that because that, that holds its value. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine that's, that's what it's going to take. It, it, once you don't have a fiat currency available and you don't have like dollar as a backstop or something like that, at that point, yeah, it becomes a medium of exchange because that's just what everyone's going to demand. I, like, are you going to take a hyperinflating dollar for your goods and services? Probably not, because you know that there there are all kinds of things to consider, um, especially with uh, you know so much of it being digital and really being credit and not uh, not cash or anything like that. Um, you know, if you're if you're uh, one of one of the things I um, observed in Lebanon is that it's it's entirely cash based at this point because no one wants to wait 31 days or, or 45 days to get paid because that's too much depreciation so everyone just ends up using cash for everything you can't you can't use credit card you can't you can't use uh, you, you use uh, you know Lebanese pounds or the US dollar there uh, so I, I think that's the point at which Bitcoin really becomes that medium of exchange that everyone ends up using because that's that's the point like it, it's it's all merchant driven um like uh, no it's not a useful medium of exchange if the merchant doesn't take it i could you know want to go buy a car at my dealer uh for bitcoin but if the deal car dealer doesn't take bitcoin then i can't transact with it um and even if they did have the option of taking bitcoin i i'm i'm not sure i would unless i only had bitcoin because I'd want to spend my dollars first. Um, but, you know, if, if it comes to a point where, you know, they're only taking Bitcoin and I need I really need a car, then that that's when those transactions happen. So I suspect that'll be the point at which it becomes sort of that medium of exchange. And honestly, that that's going to take some time because the U.S. dollar has an enormous market to expand into. Um, it's not like a small like Lebanon, where the only people that use the Lebanese pound are the people in Lebanon, and a large number of them don't like using it, so they 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 use the dollar instead. Um, you know, the the U.S. essentially has the entire world to use the dollar or to expand the dollar into. So it's going to take some time, but at some point it'll happen, and um, at that point, I think it really will be sort of this transactional currency, the medium of or, or the method of payment, I'd like to say, uh, for, you know, like sort of smaller transactions and so on. Yeah. And I completely agree with that as well. Do you, do you see that? And, and please, I would love to get your input on this, Jimmy. I see this happening and this is what I'm so optimistic about Bitcoin adoption in developing mm -hmm. countries. Mm -hmm. I, I, I see it at the writings on the wall. Yeah, I'm personally from Venezuela. I'm originally from Venezuela. I immigrated to the United States. Um, mm -hmm. There, you tell someone Bitcoin, and they're like, "How do I sign up?" That sounds like a great <laughs> idea. You pitch someone Bitcoin in the states, they're like, "It's a fifty-fifty, right?" They're uh -huh. like, "Why not Doge?" That's one answer, mm -hmm. and then yeah, the other yeah. answer is like, "That's boiling the oceans, man." Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? But again, in Argentina, a Venezuela, or whatever, they're like if a, a non-government currency they cannot debase. Where do I sign up? How, how do I get you know? How do I get my hands on this? So that's something that I've observed. Um, mm. I want to get your take. Yeah, I, uh, and I've seen that in a lot of different places where you know there, there's like a core Bitcoin community all over the world. I I, um, I spent the last uh, I, I spent this past year traveling with my family and going to a lot of these places. And honestly, there there you know a lot of these people get it. You know, they they understand. The, the problem is that, um, you know, another large percentage of the world just doesn't get it right. Like they don't understand how money works. They don't understand, you know, the mechanisms of fiat money, central banking and all of that. So it takes some education. But, you know, like brutal reality kind of forces the, their hand a little bit. Most of them end up going to the dollar. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in Venezuela as well. They, they want dollars more than anything because it's the most liquid. Um, and, you know, uh, it's understandable because uh, they they're concerned about that liquidity. I think as the dollar inflates more and the debasement of the dollar becomes more and more obvious, 
um, you know, the allocation will change. Maybe it'll become 90% dollar and 10% Bitcoin and slowly change over time. Uh, but that that's what I suspect will happen. Uh, you know, it'll differ for different people. Um, but, you know, uh, like for people in hyperinflating countries, they, they just sort of have to do something now, right? Like it's, it's a common, uh, common sort of problem uh, where, you know, if your currency is debasing like 10% in a month or something like that, you can't, you can't keep it in that currency. You can keep it in the dollar, but that's also debasing at maybe a half percent a month or something like that. But that, that's still enough where, you know, over a few years, you're, you're losing a significant amount of money. So, uh, you know, like having to deal with that and having a longer time horizon, you know, People are going to have to understand it and uh, figure it out. Uh, and, you know, reality will essentially teach them. Yeah. And, and I think that 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 last part, reality will eventually teach them. And I think um, I think the what, what I've noticed is the the countries that that uh, that have, you know, to, to use Gladstein's words, right, that, that have the, the, the most financial privilege, right, mm -hmm. where the the inflation rate <laughs> isn't big enough for people to start asking like very difficult questions and they still take the guy in the suit on TV seriously, you know, just walking out. Um, and the, 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 the reality for them, it's, it's ever approaching, but I think that they, 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 you know, they, what I, what I believe that governments and, and central banks, like I believe like one of the, uh, the, uh, the strategies that they use is like this divide and conquer, right? Where like they basically whoever, whatever political parties in charge or got elected, the opposing political party accuses them of all the economic woes and all the hardships. And then they get voted out eventually. And then they come back and then the other guy gets in and then they do the other side. But the entire time, um, these people just have been printing money the entire time and just robbing everyone blind especially if you're in the lower middle classes, you don't have the means to save in assets. Therefore, you're not benefiting from all the money printing. Um, you're, you're saving in the fiat money itself. Um, so, I mean, that in itself, uh, does that, does that worry you at all? Specifically? Cause you know, at least maybe I'm speaking for myself. Like I live in one of those countries that has a tremendous amount of financial privilege mm. and, and I'm seeing the rumblings and I'm seeing the actions by, you know, at least in the case of the U.S., the current administration, right? They're telling you clear as day that they don't like this thing. In their eyes, uh, they're releasing papers. The U.S. Treasury released a paper called "the the Future of Money." Uh, mm -hmm. They literally released a paper called "The Future of Money." And that entire paper, they don't mention Bitcoin. They mention stable coins and payment platforms. Like it's mm -hmm. so hilarious. And then they tell you it's very inefficient use of energy. Then they they say we're gonna tax the mining industry thirty percent. Forget about all the other energy intensive industries. It's just the mining industry that we're going to tax 30%. So uh, does that worry you a little bit? The reaction from the governments that have the most to lose if Bitcoin succeeds because these are the governments that have the privilege of truly being able to create money for free that everyone else has to work for. And then by doing that, being able to basically fund this crazy bureaucracy, this crazy government. Yeah, I, that that's been happening for a long time, and uh, you know you can go look at WTF happened in 1971, but bureaucracy and pretty much everything has uh, bloated exponentially. Um, this is why you know you you go all over the world. You know both parents work everywhere. Birth rates are coming down everywhere. Why? Because everyone has to work. They have to go serve the state, uh, the rent seeking class, the bureaucracy, the the Cantillon winners instead of themselves. And this is, uh, the, this has been what's happening. Um, so in that sense, like, uh, you know, all of these policies and proposals and stuff like that, it's to perpetuate the current system. And it's trying to, uh, continue the grift, the, the scam, the, um, the thing that they've been doing all along. Um, but I think people are starting to wake up to it. And, uh, you know, you can kind of see it in a lot of different parts of the world. There, you know, I, uh, a lot of places I traveled, there were still like protests about all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, it, it could be from the left. It could be from the right. It could be, you know, 
various different issues or whatever, but there is sort of like this sense that something is deeply wrong. Um, and, you know, there's at least a core group of people that aren't just going to take it. Um, now, they could try to tax things or whatever, um, but that's just going to get the Bitcoiners to leave, the, the people that uh, want to build and create. Um, and, you know, that that's going to be the detriment. Now, like, it, it's interesting because uh, the United States has had this major exorbitant privilege of being able to money print. And that means that generally the most talented people will come to the United States because success in the United States means like many billions of dollars, whereas success elsewhere, I mean, you, you can still do well, but it's, it's only in the millions. So a lot of people, a lot of talented people end up in the United States for that reason. Well, if you, you know, if you think about sort of like the downfall of the dollar and, uh, you know, the creation of newer systems, uh, well, where where are the most talented people going to go? Um, well, it's going to be the place with lots of Bitcoin. Um, and so I think governments will have to compete for the people, um, especially with population declines all over the world and so on. Uh, that's going to mean that, uh, you know, whoever sets up the best jurisdiction, they're, they're going to be the ones that benefit. And if you have sort of like anti-Bitcoin policies, well, you're kind of going to pay for it uh, by losing the productive people, essentially. So I'm assuming you're a fan of the theory from the book, The Sovereign Individual, because that sure sounded like it. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of those predictions have come true. A lot of them have not and so on. Uh, and I, I have read it. But I, I mean, this is just simple game theory, right? Like mm -hmm. if, if you kick people out, then they're going to go somewhere else. Uh, there's a reason why like Monaco, if, if you if you look at Monaco, right, tiny um, principality in Europe, uh, not very big, but property prices there are insane. Um, and every car there is like, like if you own a Porsche there, that's considered like a low, uh, low class car because it's like filled with Lamborghinis and stuff. Um, why, why is that? Well, they have really good tax policy. So everybody rich wants to move there. That, that's kind of what ends up happening uh, when you when you treat the people well is that the rich people, the productive people and the like buying property there and so on. So. I, I expect, you know, um, you know, jurisdictions to fight over people, but I, I also expect jurisdictions to get smaller. Uh, a large reason mm. why, uh, you know, countries are so big is for monetary union purposes. Uh, so you, you essentially have free trade within the borders of that jurisdiction. Um, but if you have... Uh, a money that's independent of that and is convenient and you can you can use it everywhere then there's no reason for it to be one giant union because free trade can happen um without all of that and uh and that's that's what i'm I, i'm guessing will happen like the united states for example like you know, downtown San Francisco, like shares very little in common with Omaha, Nebraska, or, you know, some rural community or something like that. And they should probably govern themselves. And I, I suspect that um, at some point as the monetary union uh, collapses, then, you know, what else is going to keep it together? I'm, I, I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, maybe common defense, something like that. But uh, you know, I, at least in the U.S., I, I don't, I don't see foreign invasion or anything like that as a, as a real, or at least warfare-wise, as a real possibility. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I think states will become smaller. Yeah, and 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 that's actually, I completely agree, right? Because again, what is that common denominator? What is the common denominator between? Uh, a state like California and a state like Florida, which has radically different ideologies in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of how they're governed, the people that live there. Um, and what is, what is the, com the common union? The common union is the fiat currency. It's the money, 
right? Would California and Florida be, you know, uh, as, you know, as would they be as, uh, would they, you know, consider themselves uh, the same country, the same union, if if they if that same currency wasn't being used, right? And then and then there's autonomy to it because if if the same currency isn't being used in California and Florida, then what incentive do those governments have to uh, to uh, to I guess have you know uh, get to get the I don't know I don't know how I'm trying to articulate this, but it's like um, yes I, I guess. To add to your point, Jimmy, I completely agree. I, I think mm-hmm. that you you are going to see a balkanization. I think mm-hmm. that's inevitable. I think the only thing that's keeping together these giant countries is the fact that they use the same money. I think yeah. that once you get rid of that element, um, I, I don't see them. I don't see the necessity to cooperate the way that they're cooperating now. Yeah, and not just cooperate, but you you have like a single law for everybody, right? Like you you have federal governments and so on. And people want to be governed differently. They want to try different things. I mean, I'm not a fan of socialism, but if uh, if a small community wants to try it out, go for it, right? Like, uh, I'm not going to tell them no, but if you're going to impose it on me, that's when we're going to have a problem, right? Uh, so th- this is where, you know, you want more experimentation, especially in governance and stuff like that, because we haven't really, uh, like, everyone sort of trends towards this monolithic authoritarian communism-ish thing. Um, every government seems to be trending towards that. Uh, and that's that's not good for anybody. Uh, you know, it, it's less freedom for uh, for the people. The, even the elites, I suspect, don't really like it because you, you have to surveil everyone and you have to constantly be looking out for people that might be uh, taking your place and might come and kill you or something like that. Like just, you know, instead of having a single policy over a very vast area, that's very, very different, you know, give, give each place sovereignty. Uh, And that, that was sort of the original idea behind the United States, the original 13 colonies, they, they, they sort of, at least before the constitution and so on between, you know, after the end of the revolutionary war and before the constitution, they acted like their own nations, right? Each each little um, little state, uh, and you know that that was the model. Um, now it wasn't really that workable because they had all this debt from uh, from the Revolutionary War and so on. But that that's something that could have worked, and you know at least on paper, that's what states are supposed to be. They're supposed to be. You know they're in they're sovereign nations, and you you sort of have this economic union um, that became more than that uh, post Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you know it, it it could be a very different system, and I would like to see more experimentation, just because I I don't think we've found uh, found what works in many ways because there there just aren't enough experiments going on. Um, you know, if you had, you know, a thousand jurisdictions that were trying all kinds of different things, then you find out very quickly, okay, this works, this doesn't, because you you get markets, you get people voting with their feet, people trying different things. And, okay, there's a lot of prosperity there. What, what are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? And, um, you know, that, that would be a good thing. Uh, instead of, you know, uh, you know, monolithic, I, I think there's like, maybe 300 countries in the world right now, like everybody lives under a flag, basically. Um, why, why do we have to have that? Uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, smaller states would be more local, more responsive to their populace, better, uh, you know, more experimental and trying different things and seeing like, you know, instead of arguing about, okay, well, we should do more green energy or whatever, well, have a, have a jurisdiction try green energy. If it doesn't work, then we can find out very quickly and not screw over the entire country and get us into like economic um, stupidity. Like, yeah, you know, try different things, right? And, and, but instead of having, uh, you know, imposing it on people that don't want it, you know, have smaller jurisdictions where they're welcoming it. Uh, I'm fine with San Francisco trying UBI, you know, like that. that's fine if that's what they want to do. 
Um, let's see how it works out economically for them, right? Like that's that that that's how you find out whether or not something works. Uh, so I, yeah, it it just bothers me that um, that instead of uh, you know reality being sort of the judge, it it ends up becoming politics and rhetoric and propaganda and things like that, which end up deciding a lot of this stuff. A hundred percent. And and that's only viable mm. with a money printer, right? Like mm. that system is only viable with the money printer. I would even say that certain collectivist ideology are only viable with the money printer as well. I think that if you remove the wealth redistribution mechanism altogether, um, then it becomes very difficult to offer UBI. It becomes very difficult to offer uh, you know, all these free things that, you know, if you study economics, they're not free. You know, they're, they're, this $100 getting taken out of your back pocket and you're given 20 and you're like, ah, I got $20 for free. Look at that. Um, anyway, so we're talking about competition. And I really want to talk about the nation state, the country that is a shining country, shining city on the hill as the expression is, something that I <laughs> talked about today. Something to me that I hold near and dear to my heart as a lot in America, as someone who, uh, you know, uh, had the privilege to be able to immigrate to the United States, um, I really do all see El Salvador as this country of hope and freedom. And I've spoken to El Salvadorians, uh, you know, not, not double, I've spoken to one El Salvadorian and then uh, my producer, uh, Opti, in the back, shout out to him, my brother. He also had a story that he told on today's Simply Bitcoin Live where he ran into, uh, you know, this this El Salvadorian kid and he asked him, like, what do you think about Naeem Bukele? And the kid's like, this guy's an inspiration. I want to go back. As someone who lives in Miami, OK, mm -hmm. where that's like the pinnacle. If you immigrate from Latin America mm -hmm. and you make it to the States and you make it to Miami, that is the pinnacle. OK, you don't go backwards. You don't go backwards. Mm -hmm. The fact that you're hearing El Salvadorian say, I want to go back because of Naeem Bukele, uh -huh. tells me, holy cow, there's something beautiful happening there, right? Mm -hmm. There's something, there's something good, there, there's something good happening there. And, and I was thinking about it today, Jimmy, I was like, okay, it can't be a coincidence that the first country that adopted Bitcoin is also one of, the, it, it's also one of the first functioning countries in Latin America that is mm. doing good by its people. And the mm. only conclusion that I got to is like, I think this is the first government that, you, that you're that you seeing on planet earth that the reason that they're doing that, that the reason that Naeem Bukele is doing good by its people is because the unit of account that they're using has aligned incentives versus mm. fiat has misaligned incentives. So mm -hmm. it's just a crazy thought. Maybe I'm an insane Bitcoin, hopeful Bitcoiner. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I would love to get your thoughts. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely correct. And uh, the thing that I've uh, I've noticed about El Salvador, and I, I've been there twice, and I'm going there this weekend. So I, I I was there January of last year and June of last year, and you know the the thing that I noticed was just in those six months, like stuff changed really fast. They were putting in sewer lines at the community in Bitcoin Beach and, you know, the roads were getting repaved and, uh, you know, in San Salvador, there were like uh, bike lanes, you know, that that's like the stuff that you see in like your major European cities are bike lanes. So, you know, people can ride bikes everywhere. Um, you know, stuff like that. You, you can just sort of see the change happening. Um, and uh, and what you said is right. Uh, there There is. The, the money affects everything. And, uh, and what I found out from uh, just studying some of the IMF stuff is that a lot, uh, most of these governments in Latin America in you know, pretty much er er everywhere, you have to align with the U.S. Um, uh, you, you, you're, you're forced to align with the U.S. Uh, and the way this works is that they want to develop their country in some way. So they take out a loan. Uh, now, 
uh, it might be for an airport, it might be for, I don't know, uh, new military equipment, whatever it is, but they, they, they usually just can't afford it because they're not collecting enough in taxes. So they get a loan or where, where do they get the loan from? They, they generally have to deal with like a U.S. bank or if you're in uh, other parts of the world, maybe like a Euro bank or something like that and uh, get loans in the Euro dollar because the dollar is... Uh, the global reserve currency for any international transactions, stuff that you need to buy, you need to use dollars to go get them. Uh, so they get that loan and then they mismanage things. They can't pay it back. Boom, the IMF steps in and they do what's a bailout, but it's not really a bailout of the country. They're bailing out the bankers. So uh, they, they'll bail out the uh, you know, the banker that loaned them that money. They take over the loan and say, OK, well. We'll start forgiving this loan, but you're going to have to do things our way. Uh, and that usually means some sort of austerity measures of some kind. And that uh, and they demand uh, some form of budgetary control. So um, if your budget, uh, country's budgets, I don't know, $100 million, you could spend at most $10 million on uh, on infrastructure or you know, and you have to spend this much and this much. And uh, and you basically have been taken over by the IMF. Uh, and eventually you end up selling the resources of your nation to, uh, you know, uh, you know, U.S. firms or something like that. You basically have to sell off stuff. Uh, and, you know, this is where we get the phrase banana republic chiquita banana ended up like owning large portions of latin america so they could produce bananas out of these places and it was through this mechanism right like it they they essentially got uh got to own these places through uh you know financial games essentially because the imf budget comes from u.s money printing so it's money created out of nothing that's weaponized to go get resources from these places now, what's what's different in El Salvador is that uh, Naib Bukele is part of, uh, you know, and Bitcoin is part of this entire program is saying, you know what, let's not depend on the IMF. Let's uh, let's, you know, uh, figure out a way to make it work without the IMF, because uh, out of the four previous presidents to Naib Bukele, three of them are in prison for embezzlement. Right. Like it's it's horribly corrupt. They. And the two opposition parties to Naib Bukele are all pro IMF. They're all pro. Hey, we got to do what they say, and uh, you know, uh, let uh, you know, agree to their austerity measures and stuff like that. And you know, we can only spend this much on infrastructure and so on. Instead, Naib Bukele is basically giving them the middle finger. Um, you know, they're they're issuing bonds and getting money from the market instead of through the IMF. Uh, and they're able to spend money the way they want to. And and guess what? They, they want to build infrastructure. They want to increase police presence. They want to make sure that things are safe for business and make sure that, you know, people can uh, engage in commerce and things like that. Stuff that, frankly, the IMF doesn't care that much about. They just want like the resources of the country and not uh, don't care about the people. So he's able to respond to the to what the people want. And it's really instead of being ruled by the international monetary order, they're being you know, they're, they're able to elect uh, somebody that's like going to do what they want. And it's become a self-sovereign nation. And, you know, you were mentioning sort of, uh, you know, Latin Americans in Miami, that's sort of like the top. Um, and from what I understand, like after that is maybe like people from Mexico because they're like closest to the U.S. And I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, from Colombia or something. And then, you know, all the way down at the bottom was El Salvador, right? Like if you're from El Salvador, you're at the very bottom of this sort of like Central American status ladder. Uh, they're they're they've climbed that right like it's they're they're no longer part of this other system so there's motivation for people to go over there because well you're you're not shackled by IMF debt and things like that or austerity measures or whatever 
can actually create things and make things and and uh, make money. Uh, that, I mean, that that's really why people come to the U.S. because they want to make money. Well, if you can make money there, why why wouldn't you? And this is why a lot of Salvadorans that I've met, met or heard about in the United States, they they they're, they're like, you know, I illegally immigrated here like 20 years ago, but I want to go back. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and it's it's for good reason because there's opportunity there. Uh, like they, the whole reason they came to the U.S. in the first place was the opportunity. Well, if there's opportunity back home and it's your own culture and your family's there and everything else. Of course, they'd want to go back. Uh, so it's uh, it's flipping back the uh, you know the influence of. Uh, the U.S. dollar over a lot of these countries, and I think that's that's basically what's happened in El Salvador. And uh, this is something that I think a lot of other world leaders are watching because they want that self sovereignty too. They uh, and a lot of the people in Latin America are watching El Salvador for that reason because they're like, "Wait, what? They, he's doing what? How how is that possible? Why? How how are they able to do this, that, and whatever?" Um, and they're realizing it's it's really the dollar hegemony that's been oppressing them the whole time. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And uh, you know, and in a way, it's 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 a bit of cosmic justice. Um, mm. But at the same time, you know, uh, maybe I was naive, but I was sold. And I know Opti feels the same way. Um, it, 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 I was I was sold a a version of America that I think is is so unique in the world and i think that fiat money and how that's allowed the federal government to grow to the size that it has has com- completely frankensteined that version of you know what you believe uh america is you know and maybe that was completely naive i'm it, getting to the point i don't want to name any names or be specific where you know there's people that i know that are, are considering or have even uh, you know, renounce their citizenship, um, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they don't see the, the net benefit anymore. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, and I, and I do see that pattern continuing. Um, and I, I don't know what, what that world is, is, is that world that we're heading in is going to look like, mm-hmm. uh, this, this balkanized world where there isn't this one major power that, uh, that basically tells everybody else what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I am, but I, I'm definitely, uh, it's definitely a great ride along the way. And it definitely gives me stuff to talk about every day. <laughs> yeah. I, I, who, who knows what, uh, what that looks like, but I, I do know that people figure things out and, you know, you, you don't need um, sort of centralized uh, control of everything in order for things to run smoothly. Um, you know, there, there are other organizations that can work and stuff. I, you know, I, I sort of shit on, um, uh, the U S dollar hegemony and stuff, but that's, it's not all bad. There, there's, uh, there's something called Pax Americana. Uh, there's been basically free trade all over the world for a, a while now, uh, since Bretton Woods, essentially. And, um, and that's due to sort of the peace that the, that America has been keeping. But, you know, that comes at a cost, of course, because the U.S. ends up being a third party to every conflict anywhere. Uh, so, you know, you see the U.S. in peace talks wherever, right? Like it, it, it could be between like Pakistan and India on the other side of the world. But, you know, like they, they, they have to be involved somehow because... Well, they control the money. The, the money is always a third party. Um, and, you know, we, we have a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, again, that's very far away from the U.S., but the U.S. ends up in the middle of it. You have a conflict between North and South Vietnam. They end up in the middle of it. You have conflicts in the Middle East. They end up in the middle of it. it it's it, it's uh, It's largely because of the dollar hegemony that, the U.S. ends up in a lot of this stuff. Uh, and, you know, if you take that away, you know, what takes its place? I mean, that those, those are those are all really good questions. And I, I'm, I'm very curious about how that will all work, because there is certainly a lot of efficiency in 
uh, in sort of like the scale that we produce things at, where you know a lot of stuff ends up going to China and being produced there and shipped back, and and you're you're able to ship like a T-shirt from China all the way to your local mall for like 17 cents or something ridiculously cheap because they they're able to do it at such an enormous scale. Um, you know, how, how, how does that get affected if the scales aren't quite as big? And is the efficiency that you gain from, you know, removing bureaucracy going to overcome sort of like the slightly less efficiency from having lots of different factories all over the world sort of like competing and stuff? I don't know. Um, and the, like the world is essentially ordered around the dollar hegemony right now. And figuring out how that changes as that dollar hegemony starts to crumble is is one of the big questions uh, for the century. Honestly, uh, we're what twenty three years into it now, uh, but th this is the question: is what happens as the dollar crumbles, and you know, I, I don't know whether it's you know a bipolar world with BRICS on one side and NATO on the other. Or if it's, uh, you know, like a multipolar world or, you know, you have thousands of uh, small sovereign states on a Bitcoin standard. I don't know. Wh whatever it is, the world needs to reorder itself because right now everything's ordered around the dollar hegemony. Um, and, you know, wh what it looks like when it's not is the big question. Yeah, 100 percent. That's the big that's that is the. One million sat question. Uh, it's not the one million dollar question anymore. It's the one million sat. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, uh, very interesting times ahead. Anyways, Jimmy, I want to I want to use the last um, five minutes or so to talk about a conference that um, that you you helped launch. Um, and I was very very privileged to be able to have a conversation with Alex Gladstein. Uh, we were talking on his book and. What I'm referring to everybody is uh, the thank God for Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. I, I thought it was amazing. The production was the production uh, value of the team over there. They did an absolutely incredible job. So I, I just kind of want to ask you, like, why thank God for Bitcoin? Like, why that specific name? Why are you, you know, including God in the picture? Yeah, I, uh, the reason for the conference's name is because of the book's name, and the book's name is uh, "Thank God for Bitcoin." And you can uh, you can go check it out at Amazon and buy it. I think it's been translated to a couple languages already. So if you're, uh, I get, I think it's Dutch and maybe some some. I I, I know Spanish and Portuguese were in the works, but I I, I don't know where that is at the moment. But that uh, the the book is the reason why the conference is named what it is, and the book came out of. A uh, Bible study that we did during the pandemic. I, um, you know, I, I wanted to keep meeting with people during a time when you know everyone was basically locked indoors. Um, so uh, you know, we started a Bible study and we studied a couple of uh, Christian economics texts: uh, the Ethics of Money, uh, Money Production by your Guido Halsman and uh, Honest Money by Gary North. And at the end of them, uh, we learned a lot, but we also realized that uh, we, uh, we could write a more updated version because neither of those um, books really took into account Bitcoin. So we wrote the book based on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we... we didn't really expect the reception that it's had, which has been fantastic. Uh, it's, uh, I think, one of, you know, I've written four books. It's it's probably the best-selling book that I've written. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we, we wanted to, uh, you know, give a different sort of argument. And it's, a, it's an argument based on morals and the way, things ought to be based on, you know, biblical morality and sort of making that argument to Christians, because honestly, a lot of Christians don't think about monetary policy or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, we, we've made that argument and we wanted to keep that at the forefront. And there was uh, certainly a lot of uh, Christian Bitcoiners that were interested in 
meeting together and and that's what led to the conference so uh yeah and it's it's been very interesting um very interesting to say the least and there's something that i've noticed uh jimmy and, and I'm, I'm very i'm confident that you've noticed it as well mm -hmm. um is that i i guess that if you can make the argument that fiat money is untethered from reality, is untethered mm -hmm. from truth, right? Mm. And you can make the argument that Bitcoin is tethered to reality, mm. therefore tethered mm -hmm. to the truth mm -hmm. by proof of work. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, um, uh, I usually don't like to talk about this, but as a Christian, you know, what do you believe? God is truth, right? Mm -hmm. Is there something there? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the The main thing is that um, you know when when you when you deny reality, you kind of go off the rails very very quickly. And you know, fiat money is very much like that. It, it was tethered to reality, right? It, it, each um, each dollar represented a certain amount of gold uh, up until you know 1971, basically. Um, you know, up until 1933, I think, it, or 30, 33 it was, um, each, uh, you could submit $20.67 to any bank and they would give you one ounce of gold. That's what it represented. Uh, FDR changed that with Executive Order 6102. And then a year later, they devalued it and made it $35 per ounce. Uh, and then in 1971, Nixon completely cut ties to gold. Uh, but that that's essentially when it became untethered. It used to represent a particular amount of gold. Uh, but then when you when you cut that off, now now it's free floating and it has no anchor anymore. And it's uh, it's, you know, been spiraling out of control ever since. And this is where we get crazy inflation and so on. Hyperinflation is essentially just. Uh, you know, things going crazy because it, it has no basis in reality whatsoever. Uh, the dollar is still, I guess uh, you could argue with uh, with the petrodollar that it has some anchor with uh, with reality because of that. But it, but essentially, like having no anchor is is very bad because there's no way to value anything. Um and in the same way, I would say, uh, you know, with morals and ethics, uh, you know, if you have Christian values and you believe in Christ, then it makes a lot of sense. But once you untether from God, then where, where do your morals and ethics come from? And this isn't something that some Christian philosopher asked. This was what Friedrich Nietzsche asked, right? Like his, his entire, um, you know, a philosophical exploration was what well what happens then right like you you've taken out god you've uh you've untethered from the sun where does your morality come from and he he came out with this entire different system of morality based on will to power and you know i mean at least in my reading it's it's basically being a sociopath and, and, you know, like that, that's where you end up uh, because you're not tethered to anything. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think most people find that kind of morality completely abhorrent. Uh, I, I would consider people like Hitler or Stalin, like Nietzschean in that way, because they were all about power and exercising that power. Um, and this is where, you know, having some basis or some link to reality is so important. Uh, and, you know, the, this is why I think I'll, uh, for Christians, you know, they can see the reality of fiat money as saying, OK, well, that doesn't have any real basis. Uh, and look at Bitcoin and say that does have a real basis and therefore it's truer. And that's, you know, I guess one of the more subtle arguments in the book. Um but, you know, I, I, I think it goes the other way, too. Uh, you know, Bitcoiners start recognizing that, OK, having a linked reality is very good because it keeps it scarce. And that uh, gives it a lot more utility, especially as a savings vehicle and so on. Um, and, you know, they start investigating and uh, start realizing, OK, well, what about all of this other stuff? Does that have a basis in reality? 
uh, and you know a lot of them find Christ as well. So uh, for me, you know, like truth leads to truth always. Uh, and if you if you found truth in one area of your life, it just tastes so good. It, it's so useful and so satisfying that you seek it in other places in your life. And, um, you know, a, a lot of people, um, thankfully have found that a hundred percent. And, uh, Jimmy, uh, this has been an honor and a privilege, uh, to have you, uh, you know, join me on simply Bitcoin live. Uh, you know, uh, I said in the very beginning, I'm going to fanboy once again, uh, definitely a legend in the space, uh, you know, and so much work that you've contributed, uh, so much work that I've consumed that that you've made. Um, and, you know, having the privilege of being able to be part of the Thank God for Bitcoin, uh, you know, conference as well. That was incredible. So I'm extremely thankful, uh, Jimmy, for you coming on the show today. Is there anything that you want to tell the audience that you're working on nowadays that you're thinking about? Um, have you, have you, let me ask you something. Have you reached the end of the rabbit hole? <laughs> no. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually, uh, finishing up a book, uh, uh, Fiat ruins everything and oh. that should be out very soon in the next month or two. And yeah, you know, um, please go pick up a copy. I'll, I'll be doing a Kickstarter of some kind in the next, uh, next month or so. And yeah, um, please participate too. Awesome. All right. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much. I'm going to put you backstage while I'll wrap this up. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. We really appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow with the live show, 12.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But until then, I'll see you guys later. Peace out.